Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. I hope you all are having a fantastic week. And if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. If you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We post every Wednesday, and you are not going to want to miss it. If you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We post every Thursday, and you're not going to want to miss out on that one either. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the solved double homicide of Anthony Anastasi and Jacqueline Riggs. Now, this case has a lot of twists and turns and will leave you completely shocked by the end of it. And I also have a couple questions for you guys at the end of it, and I'm very interested to see what you think. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. So the time period here is 2015 and 40-year-old Anthony Anastasi and 42-year-old Anne-Marie Anastasi were a married couple living in Lothian, Maryland in a two-story home with their five children. Now, the two of them ran a snake breeding business out of their home called Snakes R Us, and they had been doing that since 1998. So they were doing their snake breeding business for about 17 years. And before they lived in Lothian, Maryland, they lived in Michigan. And once they moved to Lothian, they really became a part of the tight-knit community. Lothian has about seven thousand people residing in it. And from the outside, the Anastasis looked like, for all things considered, your very typical normal family. However, what was happening behind closed doors and the secrets that they were keeping would haunt the town forever. So let's jump right to October 5th, 2015. And this was a very normal day for all things considered. It was a Monday. Now, Anne took her four children to school her eldest, which was her 13-year-old daughter, actually ended up staying home from school this day because she was sick. So Anne had taken the other four children to school. She took them to their dentist appointment, and then she went grocery shopping with her 13-year-old daughter, all before coming back to the house to take her husband to his doctor's appointment. So Anthony had a doctor's appointment scheduled for that day. And when Anne and their 13-year-old daughter got to the house, Anne went up to the master bedroom to get Anthony. And that is when she found him laying in their bed unresponsive with a gun right next to him. Now, when Anne walked into the room, the lights were off is what she said, and she kept them that way. So she wasn't completely sure what was going on. All she knew was that her husband was unresponsive. So she picked up the phone and dialed 911. And when she got in touch with the operator and basically ran the operator through her entire day, what she did that day, and then told her that she was meeting her husband to take him to this doctor's appointment, but he was unresponsive laying in their bed with a gun. When the 911 operator asks Anne if Anthony shot himself, she said, quote, I don't know. I didn't turn the lights on in the room, end quote. Now, authorities were immediately sent over to the house and they met with Anne. And when officers arrived, 
arrived, they noticed that Anne's behavior was a little odd. She didn't seem frantic. She didn't seem worried. Her overall demeanor was very calm. And she calmly brought police up to the master bedroom where Anthony was laying. Now, the officers turned the lights on, and that is when they found that Anthony had been shot in the temple with a 45 caliber pistol laying inches away from his body. And his arm was stretched out, which made it appear as if he shot himself. Now, officers could tell that the gun was fired at close range because of something called stippling. Now, stippling happens when the muzzle of the gun burns the skin when the bullet comes out of it, which further indicated to police that Anthony's death was a suicide. Now, initially, no one really had any reason to believe that Anthony's death wasn't a suicide. Anthony had been struggling with depression for a while. He had a back injury, which resulted in multiple back surgeries, and the back surgeries resulted in him not being able to work as much as he needed to, and he really fell into a depressive state because of that. So people kind of put two and two together and thought that that could have led to the depression, which led to the suicide. Now, when authorities arrived to the Anastasi home and were speaking with Anne, they asked Anne where everyone who resided in that house was. And this is when Anne told them that their 13-year-old daughter was at the house with Anne because she stayed home from school that day. And then the rest of the four kids were still at school. But this is when Anne let authorities in on a little family secret. Anne told authorities that there was a 25-year-old woman living in their basement. This woman was named Jacqueline Riggs, and Jacqueline met the Anastasi family when they lived in Michigan, like I said earlier, which was right before they moved to Maryland. The family met Jacqueline when Jacqueline wasn't doing the best in her life. She wanted a new experience. She wanted a new opportunity. Now, authorities described Jacqueline as someone who was down on their luck and needed a way out, and the Anastasi family gave that to her. Specifically, though, Anthony Anastasi. Now, when police asked Anne if Jacqueline was currently at the house in that moment, Anne said she didn't know because she hadn't seen or heard from Jacqueline all day that day. And so obviously at this point, officers wanted to go down into the basement and check on Jacqueline and see if she was there and ask her a couple questions. So Anne directed the authorities to where the basement was, and that is when they went down the staircase and entered into Jacqueline's room. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, when authorities arrived into Jacqueline's room, it was a very eerie setting. Not only was there heavy metal music blaring through the speakers, but Jacqueline's room was also a bloodbath. There was blood on the bed, there was blood on the walls, there was blood on the floor, all the way leading to where authorities would find Jacqueline's body in the middle 
of the room after she had been brutally murdered. Jacqueline had suffered from stab wounds all over her body. She had been stabbed in her stomach, her arms, her hands, her throat, her face, and even her legs. In total, Jacqueline suffered from 42 injuries. 20 of these injuries were direct stab wounds and 22 of her injuries were slash wounds. It was very apparent to police that Jacqueline did try and fight off her attacker due to the defensive wounds on her hands and the fact that it seemed like Jacqueline was running around her room trying to get away from her attacker. Now, the first thing that authorities noticed was that there was no forced entry in the basement quarters where Jacqueline stayed. The door that led into the backyard that was in the basement, so basically the way that Jacqueline would get in and out of her room to go outside, that door was locked and along with that, all of the windows in the basement were shut and locked as well. So there was no sign of forced entry, which showed police that whoever attacked Jacqueline had to come down the stairs through the main section of the house. Now, once Anne was informed that Jacqueline was murdered, she told police that the night prior to all of this happening, she had heard Anthony in Jacqueline's bedroom and the two of them were screaming yelling at each other. They had gotten into this massive argument, and after the argument, Anthony went up into their master bedroom where Anne was and told Anne to take the cats and get out of the room and sleep with the children tonight. Anne said that Anthony was very short with her, didn't give her a lot of explanation or details as to what was going on, and Anne thought it would be best to just let him cool down for the night, so that is what she did. She took the cats, and she went and slept with her children in the other room. Now, after Anne told authorities this, police really started to piece things together and they came up with the theory that Anthony and Jacqueline had gotten into an argument. Anthony murdered Jacqueline and then went upstairs and committed suicide later that night. Now, one thing that I will say is you would think that if Anthony was the one who murdered Jacqueline after it being such a brutal and grotesque scene, Anthony would have some sort of of Mark on his body indicating that he was involved in that. Whether Jacqueline scratched him or punched him or hit him or he would have blood on him in some way, this was a very, very brutal murder. So the fact that there was nothing on Anthony that indicated that he could have been involved in this is very interesting. But police were still going with the theory because it was very clear from first glance that Anthony did commit suicide. So that was the theory that they were going with. But this was only the beginning. In this next part, if you don't know much about guns, which I personally don't. I did some research on guns and bullets, so I'm going to try and explain this as best as I can, but this is a very key part in this case. Now, after Anthony's autopsy was performed, the medical examiner retrieved the bullet that was in Anthony's head. Now, when they tested the bullet, they found that it was a 380 bullet, and the reason that this mattered so much was because the gun that was found laying next to Anthony was a 45 caliber handgun and that 380 bullet does not fit in a 45 caliber handgun. Authorities actually went ahead and tested this to see if it was possible that a 45 caliber gun could hold a 380 bullet and when they did the 380 bullet just fell out the other side of the gun. It is impossible for that kind of gun to shoot that particular bullet. So because of this, this led to the basically bombshell of this case, which was this was not a suicide. This was a homicide because there is no way if this was a suicide that the gun laying next to Anthony would be anything other 
than the gun that shot him. That would have to be the gun that shot him that led to his death. There is no other explanation for it. So because that wasn't the gun, that means that this was also a murder. So now not only are authorities investigating the murder of Jacqueline Riggs, they also now have to investigate the murder of Anthony Anastasi. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. So at this time, authorities decide to bring in the only other person that was in the house when Anthony's body was discovered, and that would be Anne's 13-year-old daughter. Now, there is no name on the 13-year-old daughter, so we are going to refer to her as the daughter throughout all of this. Her name has been hidden to protect her identity because she is a minor. They had two detectives sitting with Anne and two detectives sitting with the daughter. Now, when it came to Anne's interview, Anne was asked to describe her relationship with Anthony. And she basically describes her relationship with Anthony as extremely abusive. She said that Anthony was very controlling. He had threatened her multiple times. She even said months before his death, Anthony held a gun to her head and told her to get out of the house. And he also threatened to kill her as well as anyone she ever told if she were to ever tell anyone about it. Now, along with asking questions about her and Anthony's relationship, authorities also were very curious to know where does Jacqueline fall in all of this? Because you have a 25-year-old living in your basement. Why is she there? What is she doing there? What is the dynamic? And Anne was very open about the relationship that everyone had with Jacqueline. Anne had explained that Anthony had met Jacqueline while they lived in Michigan. And Anthony basically told Anne that Jacqueline was coming and moving in with them when they moved to Maryland. Now, Jacqueline and Anthony had formed a romantic relationship basically right off of the bat. So their relationship from the get-go was a romantic one. It was a physical one. So Anthony was having an affair, but Anne was aware of the affair that Anthony was having because in the very beginning, they tried to situate it or Anthony tried to situate it as a three-way relationship. So Anthony would have his wife and he would have Jacqueline. Now, when authorities asked Anne how she was so sure that Anthony's relationship with Jacqueline was in fact romantic, she told them it was because she experienced it firsthand for herself. Her, Anthony, and Jacqueline had all had a threesome together. And afterwards, Anne said it was a terrible mistake. And she told Anthony that she never wanted to do that again. And Anthony was fine with that, but he continued his relationship with Jacqueline. So just to give you the family dynamic and what this house is experiencing, Anthony and Anne have their five children. They're living in their house. There's a 25-year-old living in their basement who also has a relationship with Anthony. So Anthony is living with his wife, his girlfriend, and their five children. Now, Anne has said that she expressed multiple times to Anthony that she was not happy with his relationship with Jacqueline. She wasn't okay with it, and she expressed this multiple times to Anthony. However, Anthony didn't care. According to Anne, Anthony told her that if she didn't like it, that she could leave. And the reason Anne says she didn't leave was because she didn't really have a plan for if she left. That was her home. She had five kids. It was not as easy as just getting up and leaving. Anne said that basically how the dynamic worked was that some nights Anthony would stay with Jacqueline and other nights he would stay with Anne. And it was just kind of a switch off. 
Now, without hesitation, Anne agreed to do a gunpowder test. She also did a DNA test and she was hooked up to a lie detector. That was all done on the same day that Anthony's body was discovered. Now, while Anne was going through her first initial interview, down the hall, like I said, Anne's 13-year-old daughter was also being interviewed, and she, unlike her mother, was extremely frantic. She was hysterical, she was upset, she had just found out that her dad had died, her and her dad had a very close relationship, and it hit her very, very hard. At one point, she even tried running out of the building, but once authorities were able to sit her down and calm her down, the daughter did start to talk a little bit. The daughter had said that the night before, when Anthony and Jacqueline were having their big fight, like Anne said, the daughter said that she overheard her dad yelling to Jacqueline about the potential of Jacqueline being pregnant. She said that was the conversation that she had heard happen downstairs from upstairs. She said that the yelling was so bad that she could hear it from all the way upstairs. And this story was basically confirmed when detectives went through Jacqueline's room in the basement and found a pregnancy test that she had taken in her bathroom. So the story of that fight was basically confirmed through that. Now, both Anne and her 13-year-old daughter handed over their cell phones to authorities. And when authorities looked through them, on both Anne and the daughter's cell phone was a group chat between Anne, the daughter, and an unknown number. After handing over their cell phones, Anne and her daughter were sent home and then brought back in the next day for a second interview after authorities had looked through their phones. Now, during the second interview, authorities inform Anne that not only did the gunpowder residue test come back and show that she had gunpowder all over her clothes, they also informed her that she failed her polygraph test. And the detective said, not only did you fail it, you flunked the hell out of it. Those were his exact words. And mind you, these questions on this test included, have you lied throughout this investigation? Did you shoot your husband? Those were the questions that Anne was being asked that she did not pass. They also informed Anne the fact that there is no way that her husband committed suicide because of the bullet and gun mishap, and that the gun that was found next to Anthony was not the same gun that shot him. And along with that information, authorities inform Anne about another piece of information that they discovered, which was that on August 5th at about 3 a.m., there was a phone call that Anne had made to her daughter at 3 a.m., and this was about a 10-minute phone call. Now, why would Anne be calling her 13-year-old daughter at 3 a.m. for 10 minutes? Now, when authorities presented all of this information to Anne, basically debunking all of her lies, Anne had nothing to say. She didn't know what to say. When it came to the gunpowder residue and the polygraph test, she said, well, that's weird. Literally all she said, well, that's weird. So this is when Anne's story starts to fall apart because she can't explain why the gun next to Anthony was not the gun that shot him. She can't explain the phone call at 3 a.m. She said it was a pocket dial. That was her excuse, but police didn't buy it because pocket dialing someone for 10 minutes is a little outrageous. It's a little too long to just be a pocket dial. But the evidence doesn't stop there. Authorities also confronted Anne on the fact that when they looked through both Anne and her daughter's text message exchanges, they found that both Anne and her daughter were texting details about how they were going to murder both Anthony and Jacqueline. So now that we're clear, Anne and her daughter 
were planning the murders of Anthony, her daughter's father, as well as Jacqueline, Anthony's mistress. But Anne and her daughter did not do this alone. Like I said, there was another unknown number in a group chat with Anne and her daughter. And who may that person be, you might be asking. Now that person is 18-year-old Gabriel Struss. Now who is Gabriel Struss, you might be wondering. Gabriel was the daughter's 18-year-old boyfriend. Now quickly reminding you, Anne's daughter was 13 years old old. So you have the 13-year-old daughter dating Gabriel, who's 18 years old. And this is not defending Gabriel. This is just explaining his upbringing. Gabriel did not have the best upbringing. He basically raised himself. And so because of that, he was always looking for a sense of family. He always wanted to feel like he was a part of a family. And when he started dating the daughter, not saying that he should have ever started dating the daughter, but when he did, he started to feel a part of that family. And because he felt like he finally had a sense of family, Gabriel would do whatever it took to maintain that sense of family. It was discovered in the text messages that Anne told Gabriel that he could come and live with them in their home if he carried out these murders. The text also showed Gabriel saying that he was going to quote unquote, slit the girl and bust the dad. Now, cops immediately go and pick up Gabriel and bring him in, and he automatically confesses. He tells authorities that Anne was the entire mastermind behind this entire operation, and he only went through with it because she said that he could live with them. So he tells authorities everything that happened. He said that on the late night hours of October 4th, Anne and her daughter went and picked up Gabriel from his house and then brought him back to where they lived. They had him wait in the backyard until everyone went to sleep. And then once everyone was asleep, Gabriel came through the front door and met Anne, who gave him a kitchen knife and a gun. Gabriel said that he put the gun in the pocket of his sweatshirt and went down into the basement and brutally and viciously murdered Jacqueline Riggs. Gabriel said that Jacqueline was asleep when he first began attacking her. And then he said after attacking her, he waited down there and made sure that she was 100% dead before walking back up the stairs, handing Anne the knife, and then going to the master bedroom where he took the gun and shot Anthony with it. Now, after the murders were carried out, Anne's 13-year-old daughter then drove Gabriel back to his house and dropped him off before coming back. And during that time, Anne staged the entire scene. She staged putting the gun next to Anthony, which again, it was the wrong gun. And she also staged the downstairs basement. What's extremely eerie about this entire situation, not that everything about it isn't, but one thing in particular that always gets me is the fact that the following morning, Anne and her 13-year-old daughter woke up like everything was fine, got the other four kids dressed for school, took them to school, took them to the dentist appointment, went to the grocery store, all while they had two dead bodies in their home. Now, Anne was automatically arrested for a double homicide. And as if there wasn't enough evidence to prove her guilty already, Anne basically confessed to the murders while awaiting her trial on a phone call that she made while she was in jail. Anne thought that she was off the record when she made this phone call. However, it is extremely telling. 
and said on this phone call, quote, even though we all think that the world is a better place with him being gone and that stupid fucking twit ass should have known something was going to happen, getting 12 jurors to see the same thing is a problem. Problem is, it's not only him. There's also a 24-year-old girl who's dead in my basement. She was a whore who moved into my house with me and myself and my five kids. Her whore ass should have stayed up in fucking Michigan. She shouldn't have moved down here. She shouldn't have moved in to my house. How should she possibly have thought that this was going to go well? End quote. Now, this is basically an admission in and of itself. And having this phone call, prosecution knew that this case was a done deal. And they went to the defense team, the prosecution went to the defense team and presented them with this phone call. And this is when the defense team basically told Anne that she needed to plead guilty for this because they had her basically confessing at this point. So Anne agreed to take a plea deal where she was sentenced to spend two life terms in prison. Now, Anne was 44 years old when she was sentenced and she has to spend at least 60 years in prison. So safe to say that she will be there for the rest of her life. Now, as far as Anne's 13-year-old daughter goes, she is currently doing time in a juvenile facility and will be eligible for release when she turns 21 years old. Now, when it comes to Gabriel, he actually received the same sentence as Anne, two life sentences with a minimum of 60 years. So he will be in there until he's about 80 years old. He made a statement at his sentencing that said, quote, I thought what I was doing would make me a hero when in reality, it only made me a monster. So many people were hurt because of my actions. I hope the victim's family can one day forgive me and understand how sorry I am. Now, that is the case of Anthony Anastasi and Jacqueline Riggs and how Anne Anastasi created this master plan to destroy her family. Now, something that I want to get your guys' opinion on was when I was doing all of my research, there were a lot of conflicting opinions from people who were commenting on this case. And the conflicting opinions comes from Gabriel's sentencing, the fact that he received a minimum of 60 years. A lot of people, which I was surprised to see, a lot of people felt a lot of sympathy for Gabriel in the fact that he basically was coerced by Anne when all he wanted was a family and he was coerced by Anne into doing the unthinkable and the unimaginable because he thought that in the end he would get the family that he always wanted. Anne had portrayed Anthony as this psychopathic, manipulative, controlling, abusive husband who has this girlfriend in the basement and Gabriel, by saying, you know, I thought I was going to be a hero, he thought he was going to help the situation. Now, we don't really know what the extent of Anthony's behavior was with Anne. We don't know how controlling or how abusive he was. What we can say is the fact that he had a 25-year-old girl living in his basement. It's obviously not the best look when it comes to trying to defend him or his character. However, my question to you is, do you think that Gabriel should have gotten a lesser sentence? Or do you think that this was completely fair considering the degree of the murders and how brutal it was? When I saw comments that were leaning more towards giving him more sympathy and having him have a lesser sentence, the debate on that is he sent text messages like, I'm gonna slit the girl's throat and bust the dad. So he was very aware of what he was going to do. So I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one. And that my friends 
is the end of today's episode. All right, you guys, that is going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. If you're listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and subscribe and also rate and review the podcast as well. I would love to hear what you guys have to say about it and it definitely helps the podcast out. And along with that, make sure you share this podcast with anyone that you know who loves true crime. The more exposure we get on these cases, the more we can help get the word out there and help bring these victims justice. If you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We post weekly every Thursday. You're not going to want to miss that. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.